We are back on the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, and now I'm in self-isolation. I'm getting up to some weird and wonderful stuff on Instagram, so do check it out at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. It'd be great to see you there. But to the show today, and I'm thrilled to welcome back an old friend, an incredible founder to the hot seat today in the form of May Habib. May is the founder and CEO at Cordoba, the platform that helps everyone at your company write with the same style, terminology, and voice. And to date, May has raised over $21 million in funding with Cordoba from the likes of Upfront Ventures, Aspect Ventures, Ventures, Bonfire Ventures, and Michael Stoppelman, to name a few. Before entering the world of SaaS, May was a vice president at one of the world's largest sovereign wealth funds, where she was the first employee on the technology investment team, building a portfolio now worth over $20 billion. Before that, May started her career in the New York office of Lehman Brothers, raising capital for software companies. However, before we dive into the show today, are you wondering how hard retail is being hit by coronavirus? Within created a dashboard to track exactly that. See real-time revenue trends for every major e-commerce sector. How is their conversion rate changing? Is their media spend shifting? See all of this and more in real time at within.co. They also have some great insights on how brands are breaking through the benchmarks and what's coming next. Visit within.co to see the COVID e-commerce dashboard. That's within.co. And speaking of great products with within there, fundamentally, quantity of leads actually doesn't matter unless you can convert them. And one of the best ways to do that is to collect and display reviews from your past customers. That's where reviews.io comes in. Reviews.io not only collects reviews from your happy customers, but it's also able to publish these reviews on Google and on your social media platform of choice. Reviews.io is a fully API-driven solution that can be fully customized around your company's requirements. And Reviews.io is packed full of awesome features. But one that I found the most useful is that they're able to tell me who my most powerful brand advocates are via the Reviews.io dashboard. Reviews.io is used by over 5,000 companies, including real leaders of industry, including Brex, Opendoor, and Car facts to name a few and as a special offer reviews.io is giving one month free no risk to all listeners just use the promo code harry that's h-a-r-r-y at reviews.io how have you heard quite enough from me so now i'm very excited to hand over to a dear friend may habib founder and ceo at cordoba good that's perfect okay i think we're warmed up May, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show today for a very special round two. Now, for those that missed our first episode, I do want to kick off today with a little on you. So tell me, how did you make your way into the wonderful world of SaaS and how did you come to found Cordoba? Well, I started my career in banking and then I moved over to the investing side. I worked for a super large sovereign wealth fund in the Middle East and it was a great adventure. I love that, but I always knew I wanted to start my own company. And once I had the seeds of an idea, I uh, tried to kick myself out of corporate life before I got to comfortable. I moved to San Francisco in 2015 and I started Cordoba. Today, we are a team of 28. We're based here in San Francisco and our product is an AI writing assistant for businesses. If you are a company of a reasonable size now, you've got people in marketing, customer success, support, sales, all talking to your market, all talking to your prospect and making sure they all say the same thing is a really tough job. So Cordoba provides an editorial style guide. We are a single source of truth for those writing and messaging guidelines. We've got a browser extension that sits in the browser and it helps correct and align writing to that style guide. And our customers are folks like Twitter, Intuit, Braintree. We use Cordoba to help their writers write well, write on brand, adjust things like terminology, messaging, writing style, getting the voice and tone right. And I was a college journalist, a high school journalist. And so there is a lot of founder market fit right now and helping people write well. I do want to ask you, because you mentioned that the time in banking and you also mentioned at the time at the Sovereign Wealth Fund. When we look at the landscape today, it's a challenging landscape. 
landscape, let's be very clear. I have to ask, when you think back to that time in 08 at Lehman's and then 09 in the Middle East, how does today compare and how do you think about that as a comparison standpoint in terms of landscapes? Well, it was an incredibly scary time. I have been here before in terms of this being a very scary time too. I was at Lehman during the financial crisis and I was one of those people, Harry, you saw on TV walking out of the building in Times Square with my life in a box and then your countryman, Larry Diamond, saved us the following week. So I went back into that building with the same box. But it was certainly months of anxiety leading up to and after the bankruptcy. And what's crazy about this time is those months of anxiety have actually been compressed into like days. And so it's an incredibly high amount of stress in a very short period of time for everybody. And then when I was in the UAE a couple years later, I was working for the government when Abu Dhabi bailed out Dubai. And I was in the heart of the region a couple years later when oil prices fell from 100 bucks a barrel, which is what they were when I moved, to $50 a barrel when I left to move to San Francisco. So even though this is my first recession in tech, I am no stranger to scary times. And it is absolutely scary. I think the suddenness really differentiates this particular economic crisis from previous ones that I've had a front seat to. And it's going to be about survival. I mean, I totally agree with you. And we chatted about it a little bit beforehand in terms of VC speaking to their portfolio founders. I mentioned it to you about us doing in terms of speaking to portfolio founders about, as we said there, survival, operational survival. So I'd love to ask, how do you think about operational survival in times of such uncertainty? It's about a few things. Number one, is do you have the cash to make it out to the other side? We've all just blown our Q1. If you have a listener who's made their Q1, I would love to hear it because it is a friggin' impossibility right now and super impressive if they made their numbers. So not only have most of us come in under on Q1, we have no idea what Q2 and Q3 hold. I've had customers who are incredible, fast-growing tech companies to prospects who are enterprise and mid-market companies, household names who have said, I can't buy software this month. I don't know what next month will be. Let's stay close. And these are deals that, you know, we had gotten really close to the finish line. It feels like this may be over by end of Q2 from a health crisis perspective, but it certainly does not mean back to normal. There is going to be a ramp up and that means a ramp up in your prospects going back to normal, in your industry going back to normal. So operational survival is going to be about making your revenue projections zero for Q1, making them zero for Q2, having them in Q3 and Q4 for. And on that basis, figuring out what it's going to take for you to survive long enough to be able to see the other side. I just don't see outside capital being a realistic possibility for most companies. So that's one. Do you have the cash to survive? I think number two is what's happening in the minds of your team. Who is anxious? Who is worried? Who do you really need to talk to to make sure they're not freaking out? Now, you know that managing our own psychology as a founder's part-time job, but during society wide crises, having been through them before, you really need to make sure you know what your team is thinking. If you're a team of 30-ish like us, then you as a founder, those are one-on-ones with everyone on your team to figure out where their minds are at. If it's a larger team, focus on your leadership, focus on your core folks. How are they doing at home? How is it like having their kids at home? Do they still believe in what you're trying to do? Those are just going to be really important things to make sure the team survives to the other side because you could have the cash stockpile you need, but if you've got people really not able to hit the ground running once you're out on the other side, then you are going to have to have a team reset as well. And then I think survival is also going to be about staying really close to your buyer and staying close to the market in a very empathetic way, not in a way where you're trying to sell them things, but really understand how their position has changed.
changed, how their jobs are changing. Most of us, most of your prospects are going to have VPs of finance and CFOs putting a pause on budgets until they can figure out what the markets are doing. Do you have a good handle of how your prospects' lives have changed? It could be a permanent change. So talking to them without trying to sell them anything, I think is going to be important for this period that we're going into. I mean, I have so many things to unpack from those. I mean, if we take it kind of one by one, you mentioned there about kind of what to expect in Q1 being totally blown in terms of the first instance. Do you think there's anything you can do to mitigate that in terms of discounts, in terms of much, much cheaper pricing for the first year and then a second year where it ramps up so you preserve their cash flow and then it gets to normal pricing the next year? Is there anything you can structure a deal as to eke them out, quite frankly? The kinds of discounts that you provide are going to be dependent on the stage of the company. So we are absolutely doing things like that because adoption is just very important for us. The initial land is really important. There are still going to be lots of folks who say, I just can't roll anything out right now, whether it's free or not. And so I think it's going to be hard for people to commit to things that work when they're trying to stock toilet paper in their bathrooms. It's just the psychology of it. And they could be there, but then the decision maker may not be, the budget holder may not be. So just so much has to line up for somebody to make a decision right now. My advice would be try to be as high EQ as possible when talking to prospects and really back off if folks can't do anything because it could be damaging to the long-term relationship if you press, even if you're giving things away. Absolutely. I do agree. You said also about kind of being really close to the hoop and being really close to the buyer there in that non-transactional way. If you think about the questions to ask to really gather as much information as possible, what questions should we be asking? I think working from home when companies are not used to that can really fundamentally change what organizations are able to get done. We're lucky, I think, in tech and startups in particular that we really have a years-long head start on the rest of the global economy. We have built entire software stacks that make this possible. There are an incredible number of companies who are just being introduced to Zoom right now. So I think having empathy for that and really just trying to dig in on how people are staying in touch. How are they talking to their boss? What's happened to their direct reports? What about all those contractors they used to have? We are a cross-functional product, so those questions are pretty natural for us to be curious about. But I think that gives you a really good sense of how anxious somebody may be, even if they're not necessarily letting it on. You mentioned their team there in terms of the customer's team. In terms of your team, when the customer does provide that feedback that, hey, we just can't roll it out free or not, or you know the pipe goes to zero, or whatever kind of negative unexpected consequence comes from this, my question to you is, what do you do kind of deliberately to keep morale high and to ensure that the team members are as empowered and as happy as possible in this time? We have really tried to ramp up the amount of good news sharing. So customer success has got their cadence of calls. And if anything, people want human contact. And so customer success has had just as busy a calendar as ever. So really being able to share those nuggets to the rest of the team is important. We had our first virtual happy hour last Friday and very lightheartedly, someone came up with the idea of, you know, a toilet paper finding service. And while on the call over beers, the team launched findmytoiletpaper.com. It's live. You could actually go to that site. So trying to focus on the people versus the business, because taking care of the people will take care of the business is what we've tried to do and checking in on each other. We've got a couple survivalists on our team who would be okay in their homes if all of electricity and water were to be shut off. And so, you know, we're making fun of them. They may have 15 people show up at their house at any given time. So, you know, really getting to know each other as people making a real effort to turn on our videos when we're talking to them, turning any social activities to virtual ones. That's what we've been trying to do these past couple 
couple of weeks. And I think findmytoiletpaper.com will soon be a viral sensation, by the way. <laughs> I love that in terms of an output. I do have to ask it because in these extended periods also, a lot of people are considering cuts in certain ways, especially if it's potentially more prolonged than one expects. These are actions that often preemptive burn cuts. How do you think about when's the right time to think about and then to do preemptive burn cuts? Well, we did one. When we looked at our operating plan for 2020 at the start of this crisis a few weeks ago, we saw that it would be pretty difficult for us to make the numbers work if coronavirus was going to be more than just a blip. And we took the extraordinary decision to reduce the size of our team by a third. And we did that very quickly. So it was days from making the decision to announcing it to the people impacted. And we did that the first week of March. And literally two days later, we went to work from home. I mean, I can't underscore the speed at which this entire crisis has come on if we really think about where all of our heads were at 10 days ago. And that day was the hardest day of my professional life. The day that we did that, a third of the company is 17 people. And it was 17 people who had become close friends to me, close friends to each other, who we had recruited painstakingly. So that was a really tough day. And I am grateful that we got to the other side of that because it makes the likelihood that we will survive what comes all that much higher. And that is a win for the team that remains. That's a win for our product existing in the world. It's a win for our customers. I mean, there's a couple of questions that I have to ask your advice on. One is that I hate conflict, honestly. And as you said, they're friends, you have relationships with them. I never know the right way to do it and the right way to approach it. Advise me, what is the right way to do it? And how do you think about structuring that conversation? Yeah, structuring the entire day was my number one job from when we made the decision to when we did it. I literally didn't do anything else but prepare for that day. And I talked to other CEOs who have done it. Uh, Lynn Perkins from Urban Sitter was an incredible resource. I talked to former CEOs who have done it. Tony Leventon from Leaders in Tech was an incredible resource there too, talking to me through this. And we ended up planning for the day that we did it in literally 15-minute increments, starting from 6 a.m. to 5 p.m. Exactly who we were going to talk to, in what order, what we were going to say, who was going to be doing what in kind of the core people that knew about it, then who was going to be told in what order in terms of the folks who needed to know because it was people on their teams who were impacted. So we decided on a Sunday, we did it on a Thursday, and my life from that Sunday to the Thursday was only this. And we had to speak very candidly to those departing. I had to take full responsibility, right? I let the company grow a little too fast and we were coming into a really incredible economic period that none of us had seen before, right? I mean, the vast majority of folks that were on our team were people who had never been through any economic crisis in their career. At mid-30s, I am one of the oldest people on the team. And so that was really tough. And I did see a range of outcomes, right? Folks for whom this was their first job out of college were impacted to a degree. Folks who went through the previous downturn were not. And so just speaking really candidly about what happened to those folks, taking responsibility for it, rallying the team that remains is just as important. Now, rallying is difficult when two days later you move to work from home. And so I really feel for the companies that are going to have to do these kinds of workforce adjustments in the next few months because they're not going to have kind of the benefit that we had, benefit in air quotes, because it was a really shit day. But we were all together at the office. And I do think there's nothing like being able to put that whole 
office in a room after something like this happens to have those frank conversations about the health of the company, the health of the balance sheet, and the fact that we're all together to run as fast as we ever have towards these goals. So yeah, there's a lot there, but I guess that'd be my advice in a nutshell. When you think about keeping the morale high there, for you, what do you think works in those situations? And if you were to advise people who now have to do it in a remote situation, what would you advise them given your experience having done it in person and kind of now being work from home? How would you advise them? I think being as high EQ as possible, people are going to want to grieve. And so moving to a rah-rah, we're going to get shit done mode too quickly is not the right thing to do. In your mind, you're already on the other side because you're the one who'd been planning for days for this. And the folks that will be doing it over the next few months, I can't tell you how many startup founders have told me that they're going to have to do something like this soon. Not trying to be too positive, honestly, about where shit is going. And what I have tried to do for myself is really hold lightly to the outcome, right? The best I can do is lead with my mind, with my heart, create a place where we love and enjoy the journey and that we all feel like we're playing a fun, challenging game with people that we like. And if we win, that's friggin' awesome. And, and sharing that and really giving people the room they need to grieve people that they loved who aren't working with the company anymore and kind of go through their own cycle of emotions versus being kind of so focused on getting them to a good place really quickly. Like if you are able to be authentic and open, they will get to a good place on their own and they'll meet you there. But you have to meet them where they are emotionally right now. In terms of being authentic and open, it's as you said, it was the hardest day of your career. It's a horrible and shit situation. And so in terms of the psychology, I am really intrigued. How do you fundamentally manage the psychology of that, of being CEO? And how do you handle these really pretty shit situations? My friend Nick Flanders is a CEO also. And he told me a phrase a few weeks ago that just really encapsulates how I get through the tough times. And it's one that I just said, holding lightly to the outcome. You can be really obsessed with the process, really focused on the process. If you can hold lightly to what that process gets you to, you are able to be so much more present, are able to connect much more deeply and and show up more authentically and, and openly. And I think it leads to better outcomes for your own psychology and the psychology of others around you. You are leading from a place of joy and love versus fear and anxiety. And I think that makes all of the difference in leading. And our own psychology is important so that we can show up every day and get out of bed every day. But it's also important because if we're not managing our own psychology, there's a transference that happens, whether we like it or not, whether we feel it's happening or not. And people know when you're leading from a place of security and love versus fear and anxiety. And especially in this period that we're going through right now, and I think it's going to last a couple quarters, leading from a place of true peace is going to be more important than ever. Can I ask a really weird and quite deep question? I hope it's okay for me to ask. Where do you yourself find true peace and, and security in what you do today in terms of now being also work from home? What is it that gives you that kind of mental secure place? I feel mentally secure knowing that no matter what happens, me and the team will have left it all out on the field. We don't leave a stone unturned. And knowing that you're giving it your best and there are going to be all sorts of things that are outside of your control, I think gives me a lot of peace. And truly 
trying to do good things for people, whether that is your customer, whether that is a person on your team, whether that is a contractor who you're working or no longer working with. I mean, trying to do it peacefully is what gives me security that I'm not wronging anybody. Nobody on my team is wronging anybody. And we are all just trying to do our best. If we take care of the people, I really believe this, it will take care of the business. And I believe we are going to win and make it through the other side. But these are challenging times. These are uncharted waters for sure. There's there's no playbook for this. But before we talk about communicating those team changes, a word from our sponsor. And are you wondering how hard retail is being impacted by coronavirus? Within created a dashboard to track exactly that. See real-time revenue trends for every major e-commerce sector. How is their conversion rate changing? Is their media spend shifting? See all of this and more in real time at within.co. They also have some great insights on how brands are breaking through the benchmarks and what's coming next. Visit within.co to see the COVID e-commerce dashboard. That's within.co. But now back to this amazing episode with May. Can I ask, how do you communicate the team changes but to kind of two very important and specific segments being one, your customer base and two, your investor base? Do you need to uh, do you need to really convey the changes to the customer base one and the investor base two? Definitely two, both for sure. And there are different communication strategies on the customer and the prospect side. And we went customer by customer, prospect by prospect. They don't need to know the ins and outs of everything that happened. They do need to know that somebody that they worked closely with is no longer with the company. Depending on how big that relationship was, it involved me also getting on the phone to just let them know that the company's in a really, really strong position, stronger than ever. And we wanted to make sure that we were in a position to weather what may and have our own future in our own hands. And those conversations went very well. And certainly with investors, they are part of your initial decision. And so the investors have got, for the most part, a head, an advanced view on what's coming. In our case, it was pretty specific. What's nice about investors is they've got a portfolio, right? And so they've seen, especially if they've got decades of experience and we're very lucky with our very experienced investors, they've seen this dozens and dozens of times. And so who's impacted and how you do it, they are so well positioned to give you advice on that. So we brought them in very early. And then they're also there to help you get folks back on their feet. And so we created a list of folks who are impacted that was shared with the portfolio companies who are hiring and in higher mode of our investors. And so investors are very empathetic. They're very supportive. If anything, they're asking you to cut even more than you think you need to because they've seen this story before. And they're really incredible and also trying to help get people back on their feet. Every investor is calling every portfolio founder they have right now and telling them to cut everything they can in terms of burn and really just maximize runway as long as possible. A founder's a little bit annoyed by this when they have every investor they have calling them for the very same call. And how do you think about that? Because it's something that I've been concerned about as I've been making these calls. So much advice is really hard to internalize and action until it's lived experience. Every time I'm annoyed by a question or <laughs> frustrated by somebody asking me something, that's a moment for self-reflection. And we don't want to do the hard things. It's just human nature. And no matter how annoyed they are at you, Harry, still make the call, still give the advice. I also resisted making our cuts as big as they ended up being. And I am now grateful that 
I took that hard advice. And a lot of it is just the founder coming to terms with what they need to do. And I think they will thank you for it. No, I agree. Are you worried about the psychology of your team in this time? A lot of founders I speak to are are very worried, especially if they don't have a remote first team initially. Are you and have you been worried about the psychology of individual team members, loneliness, isolation, fatigue? Is that a concern for you? Or do you feel that given the infrastructure set up already, it's a storm that can be weathered quite easily? It's my number one concern is making sure the team is okay at home, isn't feeling anxiety. I mean, we have had our fundamental needs challenged. When people go to the supermarket and the shelves are empty, when people are afraid for the lives of their parents, I think that the psychological impact of this goes deeper than we even think right now. And you have to be empathetic to that as the leader of a company. It's going to impact productivity. It's going to impact the way folks show up. And the only thing you can do, I think, is make yourself available and have these kinds of candid conversations with people very early, very frequently. We try to stay in touch as much as possible on a daily and weekly basis through Zoom. And I think it's going to get a little worse before it starts to get better. But yeah, I have so much empathy for everybody who hasn't had a remote first team until now. Can I ask you, the other thing that we're seeing is obviously school closures. It also just causes a huge, not burden, but time responsibility on working professionals who previously had their days unencumbered when children were at school. How do you think about being a leader when many employees or employees suddenly have children that they need to homeschool and look after all day. Oh, so much empathy for that. I have an 11 month old at home who is being pushed around in a trolley outside right now because I am doing this call. So, you know, and I think we've had really from the beginning a culture where there's not really a stark line that divides home and family. I had my newborn at the office at 10 days old and then at three weeks old and that's the same for other folks in the company. I have done calls with candidates with my baby in my lap or you can hear them in the background. And it's just part of life at Cordoba. We've got a lot of parents on the team. And I think we are all going to have to be okay with kids coming in and out of the frame. Everybody knows this CNN clip from a couple years ago. I think that just normal. I was literally just on a call with a great contractor that we work with and his wife walked into the frame, said hello, the baby baby ran in and she joined him on his lap for a little while. And it was just really lovely. And there is a lot of silver lining, I think, in this phase that all of our economies are going through. And if it is a bit of the blurring of the line between home life and work life, I think that's going to be a very positive thing. Can I ask you a weird one and a slightly messy question, but I'm too intrigued and I've been thinking about it a lot over the last few days. And it's, do you think we'll be fundamentally so much more appreciative of human connection and human relationships after this period of isolation? Or do you think that the health concerns and the virality of the virus itself will just actually lead people to be more skeptical, more germ-phobic than ever. And that might be the wrong word, but do you know what I mean? More isolatory than ever. Which way do you think it will go? Oh, I think we're going to become so much more connected. I leaned my head out the window today and told my neighbor that the Walgreens had restocked toilet paper and his dog barked up to my baby. And it was just moments like this happening now throughout our day that just didn't happen before. I think one of the benefits of working from home is going to be feeling much more present in our communities. And especially in San Francisco, we've got such a transitory population and being able 
people to just breathe into the physical place where you're at. Because, I mean, right now, San Francisco is on lockdown. We are not supposed to leave our house for non-essential anything for the next three weeks uh, till April 7th. And that is a forced step back. It's a forced reckoning in a way. And that, I think, is going to have really positive impacts in the kinds of bonds we all make in the, just the physical communities where we live. That makes me super happy to hear. No, I'm, I'm very pleased to hear that. And I, I do hope for the same. I do want to move though into my favorite element of any episode, though, may being the 60-second sasta. So I say a short statement, and then you hit me with your amazing immediate thoughts. Are you ready to dive in? <laughs> okay, great. Let's do it. Okay, so let's hit with what do you know now about the process which you wish you'd known at the beginning of your time with Cordoba? That advice would be useless. And what I mean by that is once you've learned the lesson yourself with your own lived experience, you can kind of look back and say, ah, yes, that's what that advice was about. But nothing I would say would be as helpful as if you want to start a SaaS company, please just get started and get all your mistakes over with. It's like when you start a company, there should be a syllabus of all the mistakes you're going to make some of the multiple times in different flavors and just pick yourself up, check it off the list, take the lesson with you and move on. I wish I had known that that's what it was going to be like. If you could change one thing about the world of SaaS today, mate, what would it be and why? I think I would do an industry founded nonprofit whose purpose was an education effort for the mid-market enterprise on just what SaaS can do. It's not just about CRM and ERP and accounting software. There's a whole software stack that makes a startup super efficient and innovative. And if non-startups could really understand that flow, I think it would change the speed at which they bought and adopted software. What's the hardest element of your role with Cordoba today, May? I think on the work front, I would say the hardest part is going back to build that inbound and organic engine. We just got so good at outbound that we never did that. And now we have to because the buying journey is changing. And it's a fun and it's an interesting skill set for sure, but it's just a different one than the one we had been developing. And I would say that it's been challenging, fun, but challenging. And then I think from a leadership perspective, the hardest part today is really just trying to keep the team together, keep us positive and get us to the other side. Tell me, when you're stuck, who do you turn to for advice? And what's been your big takeaways from that relationship? I turn to books and I have lots of great conversations with people in the industry and investors, but I kind of have this like three-part Bible that really helps me when I'm stuck, stuck. Because uh, I feel like when I'm stuck, I just have to go into my own mind for a minute. And in the rereading of this canon with the new lived experience is where I think my insights happen for me. And my three go-tos are the 15 Commandments of Conscious Leadership by Diana Chapman. That really changed my life. It was recommended to me by Karen Norman. And then you had him on your show last week, Matt Mashari, the great CEO within. Love the episode. And I've been rereading chapters of that book for months now. And then Disciplined Entrepreneurship by Bill Ollett. For those of us who are gut-driven, it's just it's a great balance, very data-driven approach to building product. Those are sort of like my Old Testament, New Testament, and Quran. I love those three books. Listen, I love doing the episode with Matt, and it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show today. So thank you so much for joining me today, and I really do so appreciate it, May. Thanks so much, Harry. My word, I absolutely love May and such exciting times ahead for Cordoba now. And if you'd like to see more from May, you can find her on Twitter at May underscore Habib. Likewise, it'd be great to welcome you behind the scenes here. As I said, self-isolation and so doing some very weird and wonderful shit. You can find that on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. I would love to see you there. But before we leave you today, fundamentally, quantity of leads actually doesn't matter unless you can convert them. And one of the best ways to do that is to collect and display reviews from your past customers. That's where reviews.io comes 
comes in. Reviews.io not only collects reviews from your happy customers, but it's also able to publish these reviews on Google and on your social media platform of choice. Reviews.io is a fully API-driven solution that can be fully customized around your company's requirements, and Reviews.io is packed full of awesome features. But one that I found the most useful is that they're able to tell me who my most powerful brand advocates are via the Reviews.io dashboard. Reviews.io is used by over 5,000 companies, including real leaders of industry, including Brex, Open Door, and Carfax, to name a few. And as a special offer, Reviews.io is giving one month free, no risk, to all listeners. Just use the promo code HARRY, that's H-A-R-R-Y, at Reviews.io. As always, I so appreciate all your support, and I can't wait to bring you a fantastic episode next Monday with Anthony at Front.